Hi Rachel, what are you doing? I'm trying to remember how to put a podcast together after my rather long summer break, but it's great to be back. And who are you talking to this week? The lovely Eunice Learmont, otherwise known as the Will Writing Yogi. That sounds interesting. And what's Eunice's story? Well, it's all about how she combines what she learns from being a Will Writer for many years and teaching yoga. It's fascinating. And does a porcupine feature? No, I'm not sure if porcupines are actually subject to in the laws of intestacy. Maybe I should have asked her. Let's find out some more, shall we? Hello and welcome to Lessons from Loss, the podcast in which we share our experiences of loss and more importantly, what we learn from them that now positively guides our lives today. I'm your host, Rachel Smith. And each episode, I chat with a different guest. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the courage and vulnerability of all my guests in sharing their very personal experiences, but also the impact that hearing these stories may have on you, the listener. So please take care as you listen. So today, I'm super happy to be chatting with Eunice Learmont, also known as the Will Writing Yogi. Eunice came into estate planning through her own experiences of being married into the military and losing any potential inheritance when her father died without a will. So estate planning and yoga teaching aren't usually occupations that go hand in hand, but Eunice manages to combine them beautifully and provides a very personal estate planning service to individuals. So welcome along, Eunice. Thank you, Rachel. Lovely to be here. Oh, I'm really looking forward to kind of finding more about what you do and, you know, how you how you got into doing what you do. But thank you for coming on to the podcast to share your own experiences, but also I'm sure what you've learned over the years in helping other people get their affairs into order, because you know, each client, I guess, brings something different with them. And from my own experience of writing my own will, there's nothing quite like sitting down with someone and thinking about what you want to happen when you die um, for, you know, that often uncomfortable sort of delve into our own mortality. And with death being the only certainty in life, why is it that we're so reluctant to to get wills written and our affairs in order? I think for a lot of people that emotions come into play and whether it's something that people have experienced personally you know if they've experienced tragedy in their own lives there is that reluctance to go back to that discomfort and that pain but the other thing in you know at a very practical level is I think people make a lot of assumptions around what happens to their stuff and their wealth when they go and without necessarily realizing you know the decisions they choose to make or not make um, has an impact so you know certainly you know in my own experience with my father as you mentioned I can remember when he was poorly and I'd been to see him Uh, in New Zealand, that's where my father was living uh, when he passed. I remember thinking, how on earth am I going to broach this subject? Now, I was brought up where we don't talk about dying, we don't talk about money, we don't talk about, there were certain topics of conversation that were off limits. 
And yet I was just starting, um, you know, in in the, that area of work. And I knew how important it was that people needed to consider it because we just wouldn't know what to do otherwise. You know, we're reeling from the potential pain of losing somebody. And at the same time, we're needing to deal with sorting things out. Um, And talking to my father way back when, it, it was a really uncomfortable place, mm-hmm. notwithstanding the fact that I didn't want him to think that I was just concerned about money. Yes. I think for a lot yeah. of people, it is that discomfort. Why are you talking about it? You know, I'll decide when I decide sort of thing. Um, but I think for, for him really, and and my passion was twofold. One was being very aware of wanting him to make that decision of what he wanted to happen to happen and and actually you know recording it or noting it down or being aware of it but the other side of it was he was in a second marriage and that awareness of you know we hear enough about Cinderella stories and there's you know Walt Disney has shown us what it's like when there is a wicked stepmother or whatever the scenario might be. So there's plenty of um, of anecdotes out there for people where somebody has fallen out as a result of, of you know, stuff. And it isn't even necessarily money. It might just be, you know, a, a cherished object yeah. that is, you know, of sentimental value. And when I remember the conversation with with Daddy, and and he was very much, don't worry, your stepmom will do right by you, and that's me and my sister. And and I remember saying to myself, Daddy, I don't care. What I want to know is what you want to happen. And and I remember him being really uncomfortable about it himself. Um, and. To that end, he ended up asking me to write a letter of wishes. And the important thing for people to be aware of, wishes are just that, they're not legally binding. Mm. So a letter of wishes is merely a letter directing, you know, whoever it is that may deal with your stuff and your affairs to be aware of what their wishes are, but having the ability to deviate from that. And in his letter of wishes, he had listed particular items because my father collected all sorts of things, amongst which he had lots and lots of different paintings. And um, and he had specified in, in the letter of wishes, he, there was a particular painting he wanted my sister to have. And he knew that there was a painting that I really loved and one that my husband really loved. So he had documented various things. And it was signed and it was witnessed. Not that that is a necessity. You just need to sign a letter of wishes. There is no need for witnessing. Um, and I knew that had been done. But I also knew at that time that he didn't have a will, nor did he want to write a will, despite the fact of me explaining that that is what's going to allow um, you know, legalities to actually take place. 
Um, and he didn't need a will for a good few years because he he lived, you know, for a few years more. And and in fact, when he did die, it was a good few years after I had discussed this with him. And his death came to me as a shock. It was an unexpected death. He'd, he'd taken a fall in the night. Um, he was in a nursing home and the nurses got him back into bed. And by the time they went to get something and came back to him, he was gone. It was oh, as gosh. quick as. Mm. And uh, my only, um, I guess, blessing was the fact that I knew that, A, he wasn't unwell at the time. He was fragile and frail, but he wasn't unwell. Yeah. And B, it was quick. And, mm. and I think sometimes when it's quick and unexpected, um, that's potentially for some people the best way to, you know, to, to go. Um, because yeah. I think for a lot of people, prolonged illness or prolonged pain is the thing that we really, really don't want to, to A, experience, but B, you know, see in our loved ones. No. Um, and I suspect that's probably a, a topic for a different day. Um, and, and my stepmother rang me to tell me that my father had passed away. And suffice to say that... Um, she had to get my telephone number from another relative because she didn't even have my phone number. That was the type of relationship we right. didn't have. Um, and I think, you know, for, for, there are many people out there who have really good relationships with um, what I call step parents, you know, second marriages, third marriages and, and the spouses. But at the same time, there are many who don't. And although she had been in my life from my childhood, I knew that I didn't have that greater relationship with her. And what surprised me most, I think, was the fact that I didn't feel the need to drop everything and go. And I had always been that child that as soon as I'd had a phone call to say my father was ill, I wanted to drop everything and go because he was my father. And the fact that he lived on the other side of the world was, you know, neither here nor there. I wanted to be where he was to, mm. to do something. And I had to break the news um, of daddy's passing to my sister and she lives in a different continent. And, and we had this discussion where, where she said, I need to go. And, and she said, are you going to go to daddy's funeral? And I said, no, I'm not. And I surprised myself because I always thought, you know, I need to be there. And and I remember thinking, well, I know daddy's not there anymore. You know, I'm a spiritual person. And in my mind, you know, he his physical shell was there. But in my mind, his soul had gone. Yeah. And and so I didn't feel the need to to go but the other element of it was I didn't want to see my stepmother I didn't want to put myself through the agony of that potential conflict that was likely to rear its head um, some people might say that's cowardly but I kind of think well why walk into a war zone if you don't have to um, and and I knew that you know, the likelihood of my father, you know, between the, the conversation I'd had with him and him actually passing, having done something with regards to having a will was, you know, 
the square root of very little. Yeah. And um, and I thought, well, it is what it is. Let's see what happens. And my sister attended the funeral and and we'd made arrangements and she had sent my father's ashes back to me uh, so that my father was English. So, you know, she felt that we had family in the UK. So, you know, daddy could come back to the UK and I could have a memorial service and, and he could say his goodbyes to the UK as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what we did. And, the, and how was the, how was your stepmother with, with all of this i believe she was you know she was she was grief stricken to a point but um i remember a comment and this is this will probably give you know people a little insight was that she had mentioned something about the liqueur chocolates being very nice now i had just sent my father um, a gift box for his carer and um, his carer he had a carer at the nursing home and and he, he and I had spoken on the phone he says I need you to get you know a present together for my carer because it's her birthday and I thought what am I going to get this lady I said I, I know nothing about her and he says don't worry he's you'll think of something and I put together a parcel with a you know a little ornament and some liqueur chocolates from a Devon chili place and um, and all sorts of things because they didn't have liqueur chocolates in New Zealand so I thought well chocolate so it'll be something different um and you know various little bits and pieces just a little gift parcel and I knew it had arrived because I've been told that it had arrived um, but when I heard that comment, I knew it didn't arrive to its intended person. Mm. And and I remember being really, really angry about it because I thought, well, that was the one thing my father really wanted me to do for him. Um, and I failed. You know, and I was so angry about it. And I thought, OK, well, there's nothing I can do about it right now. Um, and I sort of put it to one side. Um that was the type of relationship I had. Mm-hmm. And and to be fair, thinking about it, the last time I spoke to my stepmother was when she rang to tell me that my father had died. I have not spoken to her since. Um, and, you know, it's been over a decade now. Um, so I actually have no idea whether she's still around. Um, and my sister attended the funeral. Um, there was a... Uh, um, a recording of the funeral and the recording was sent back to me and it took a long time before I could you know drum up the courage to sit down and I did on one weekend quietly at home um, sit down and watched it I had a glass of wine or two and and I remembered sitting there and and it was just pure vitriol that was escaping me alongside grief but there was so much anger because I was listening to what was being said and there was just so there was just so much emotion there even though I was dealing with the fact that you know he was already gone and I'd fully accepted that I wasn't going to attend the funeral and and I was completely okay with it Mm -hmm. and my sister had attended and and I remember saying to her before she went I said if you want me to be there for you I'd be there for you but I'm not going because of that because that yeah. wasn't what I felt I needed to do. And 
we had a memorial service in the UK for him um, some months later. And my sister came over from the States with a friend and a few members of the family in the UK attended. And I did a reading and I did everything that I felt I needed to do to remember him. And I remember that day very, very clearly. Um, and, and, and interestingly enough, the question came up uh, whilst my sister was in New Zealand as to, was there anything I wanted of my dad's? And the only thing I'd asked for was a pen because my father was a collector of many things. Um, but one of the things that he did love um, was his collection of pens. He had all sorts of fountain pens and pencils and, and everything. And because of his great penmanship, I always thought if I had a pen of my father's, it would be like writing in his hand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, knowing that he held this pen to, you know, write with, I thought that would be something. Um, but I, I never got that. And my understanding was everything went to auction. And my sister had to ask a friend to bid for the painting that my father had wanted uh, to give my sister. And oh, gosh. Bought the painting and it is now hanging in her bedroom. Um, and Ooh. we walked away from it all. Mm. And it genuinely, it, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about stuff. It was just the principle of yeah. not being able to fulfill my father's wishes. Mm. Um, and if you have any type of experience to do with dying and the arguments that come with it, I think a lot of people become very reticent around talking about it because they don't want to upset anyone. Yeah. Um, and I think the important thing to remember for people, especially people in, in England and Wales, because legally that's the jurisdiction that I cover, um, the law is clear. We have something called testamentary freedom, which means that we are allowed to leave our stuff, money, things, chattels, property, to whomever we wish, full stop. There are situations and people need to understand that. And the caveat is that if there are people out there with an expectation, because you've promised them, you know, don't worry about needing to work. I'll look after you when I die. You will inherit blah, 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 you know, and made a promise that people have relied on, then there is a caveat around that if you've not been provided for. But at the same time, there are particular categories of people and there is legislation that protects those where there is an expectation in law that people would be provided for. But I think for people to firstly be very clear and very aware that cohabitees in particular because we now live in a society where fewer and fewer people marry, yeah. they don't see the need and there isn't the legal need like there used to be, um, is they spend their lives, you know, living with someone they love for however many decades. And then they don't think that there is a need 
to make you know, um, provisions for that person because assumptions are made yeah. that we've been you know common law spouses for so long and you hear people oh well they're we're common law husband and wife in the in you know in the UK that doesn't apply so if people cohabit then you know you're in essence walking in treacle and and people do need to think very clearly around you know provision for loved ones in that situation and that isn't necessarily something that people really want to think about no. um, yeah and I guess as well at the you know nowadays families are so complex in their structures aren't they it, it's not as straightforward as it was you know, 25 years ago 50 years ago 100 years ago that there's there's all sorts of um different layers and and we have much more of blending of families mm. now. and um and people's outlook on stepchildren and children out of wedlock and things like that you know society's views on on things like that has changed so much over the years and it's understanding actually no, if people choose not to do a will, that's a choice. Um, but they need to be clear as to understanding what happens. Yeah. And I think that's a really important starting point for people. Do you actually know what would happen to your estate, your stuff, your things, your money, if you died without a will? If you do and you're okay with that, then that's fine. You make yeah. a conscious decision not to, you know, write a will. But if you're making that decision out of assumptions, then that's where you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing your family a disservice. Or in some cases where there is no family, you're doing your friends a disservice. Um, so I always feel that, you know, the starting point is, do you know what happens if you died without a will, you know, to your stuff? And and uh, if people are aware of that and in, you know, in the UK, certainly, you know, for for England and Wales, there is a very clear uh, route map, for want of a better way of describing it. And there are certain questions that get asked as to, you know, the person who's died and what happens. And, and the questions usually start with, is the person married? Did mm. the person leave a surviving spouse? And depending on their yes or a no, the next question would then be, did the person leave surviving children and children who may have predeceased them? And if they've left children who might have, um, if they have children who may have predeceased them, the next question then is, did the predeceased children leave children? Ah, oh, okay, yeah. Because the, the way the way it currently works, and you know, if the laws change, you need to make sure that you, you know, you're seeking the right advice and making sure it's the most up to date, is if you die and you don't have a spouse and that includes civil partnerships, then 
and you don't have children, then it starts looking down your family tree. And the next question after that would be, do you have surviving parents? So, you know, any advice you get, you'll find that they should usually include asking you all the ins and outs of your your family tree, you know, going up, going down, going mm. sideways. And, and because that's what helps determine what happens if you die without a will. And dying without a will is known as intestacy, dying intestate. Um, so, you know, starting point, are you married? Were you married when you died? Yes. Okay. Then did you have children? Yes. Right. Stop there because you've now got the, the various dominoes falling. And the first domino is the fact that you've got a surviving spouse. And then the second domino is that you also have children. And then the next question will be, actually, how much is the entire estate worth? Because depending on the size of your estate will de then determine how that estate is split. And in, for England and Wales, we have something called um, a statutory legacy. So by law, what happens is, and the figure now is 270,000 pounds. So the first 270,000 pounds plus all the personal chattels will go to the surviving spouse. What's left, half of that will also go to the surviving spouse. And then what's left would be divided equally between the children. Oh, okay. Hence the question of mm. whether there are children or not. And if you, let's say, have three children and one of them has died and they left children, so you're now going down to the grandchildren, yeah. then whatever's left is divided between the surviving children and the surviving children of the predeceased child. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, this is what happens if somebody dies without a will. Wales, so this is how then will. The, the court or the law decides how Correct. that stages yeah. is, yeah. is distributed the, the rules of intestacy um so if if somebody died without a will and they left um, a husband or a wife or a civil partner but they didn't have children then the domino falls there and everything in essence would go to the surviving spouse or civil partner which is why you know when people say to me well i don't need a will we don't have kids no, we've been living together for 30 years. Yes, but are you married? If you're not married, then sorry, that domino doesn't fall at your door. It then goes down a different rabbit hole to try and understand what the family tree of the deceased looks like. So it really is important for people to at least know what actually will happen if you died without a will what is the situation in your personal circumstances and if you're okay with that then you you're making it with you know you're making an informed choice knowing the facts and this is where if you're then looking at somebody with a potentially small estate and they are on a second marriage 
there is a risk if they have children from a previous relationship that those children will get nothing because the estate is small and everything then ends up going to that spouse, surviving spouse. Yes, yeah. So it really depends. If if you've got children from a previous relationship and you're hell-bent on wanting to provide for them no matter how small, um, and actually your estate is not that big and you don't make a will, then unfortunately those children won't see anything, whether it's a token gesture or you know, a grand one. So, And that's where the frustration lies. And recently I was um, asked by somebody um, where the they have a child with the deceased. They never married, so there isn't a spouse there. Yeah. But the deceased also had children from a previous relationship. And the two children from a previous relationship were adults. But the child from the second relationship was still a minor. And there was no will. And they came to me because they said, oh, you know, he's died. So the father has now died. And um, we've been told that, you know, she is one of his children. So she will be entitled to receive X, Y, or Z. And I said, well, you know, was there a will? Yes. And I was like, okay, then I need to see the will to know who is responsible and, you know, what provisions have been made. But there was estrangement in the family between the mother of the second child from the second relationship and the children of the first relationship. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were at loggerheads as to, well, who's entitled to see what and, and you know, and all of that. And, and I think this particular person only had a little screenshot of a photo of a document and we then did you know I asked a few more questions and it transpired that the person who died actually died intestate and his adult children from his first relationship had gone ahead and applied for uh, letters of administration and they were potentially going to do their step or half sister as as she is yeah. out of her share of her inheritance for several years because she wasn't you know in their mind according to a will that was never signed um therefore you know it doesn't exist as far as the law is concerned um the father had intended for minor children not to receive their inheritance until they reached 21 rather than the age of majority of 18. So, you know, it then becomes a, you know, I become a private detective. Yes, because you know, yeah. my job is then to try and squirrel out particular things and and ask particular questions. And when I went back to the mother of this child and said, oh, by the way, um, the child's father actually died without a will. She was so shocked. And she's like, and I said, this this could potentially either be no negligence on the part of the professional dealing with it or it could be fraud which is a whole different ball game yeah yeah and you know so so money and stuff does things to people mm. and if you don't come from that happy family situation 
then you know people get very very aggressive and potentially possessive at a time of heightened emotion yeah yeah and i think a lot of the time it's because of that potential for for dispute that then pushes some people to shy away from it um but then it eggs some people on to do something about it because they don't want it to happen yeah you know so you kind of get caught in the middle and you're like well which route you're at a crossroads which way do you go do you go down the route of i'm going to run away from it or do you go down the route i'm going to tackle this head on um so so that's i think really a good starting point for a lot of people and it really is about emotion Mm. and i think you know, different estate planners and different estate planning lawyers will approach things differently. And I'm very much around, I'm a bit of a mother hen. I, I, you know, love is my primary goal in life. I think we all need more love in our lives. Absolutely. We also need a lot of kindness around this because a lot of people, you simply don't know what people's experiences are of death. And you don't know what what it brings up for them. Mm-hmm. And some people can go through an entire lifetime never experiencing losing a loved one. Others can experience it from a very young age. And my first experience was the loss of my own mum. She died when I was seven. And you know, I remember seeing her in hospital. I remember being there you know, when she had died. And I remember the the agony and the, you know, the the inconsolable pain my grandmother was going through because no parent wants to see a death of their child, yeah. even as an adult. Mm-hmm. And um and and then, you know, various losses over, you know, time growing up from friends at school you know, at a young, you know, still a young age, right up through till even now, you know, now it's, I've made it part of my career in dealing with death and end of life. Um, And I think everybody approaches it very differently. And it's about being able to give them a safe space Mm. and give them the time and having the patience to work through it. And sometimes time is not on your side, especially if people are ill yeah. and things need to you know, happen quite quickly. But then even with that in mind, it's then giving them that clarity of trying to get to the bottom of what you want. Mm. And, and for a lot of people, some of the dilemma stems from they so desperately want to do the right thing. Yeah. And one person's right thing is different from somebody else's right thing. And it's also then the balance of what societal norms dictate should be done versus what an individual actually wants to be done. And where I see a lot of... um, challenge 
is where there are many children and the parent really wanting to be fair. And that's difficult because there is a difference between being fair and being equitable. Mm. And where a child might in their duty of being the eldest or the youngest or the one that is lives the nearest or the one that you know um has the right experience to look after an elderly parent and then potentially getting the same share of an estate as a child that simply doesn't care about the parent doesn't ring doesn't talk you know lives on the other side of the world for whatever reason no 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 not necessarily any animosity but just simply geographically they're in a different place and that type of thing and for the for the parent it's that oh I want to treat them all the same and then it's that question of well you know, is it a question of deserving? Is it a question of doing the right thing? What is it that they want to actually do? If there was no judgment from anyone, you know, what would you want to happen? Would you want to help the child that's in the greater need? You know, if you've got, you know, two children and one has got a good job and is earning a lot and has everything that they could possibly want in terms of financial security. And then you've got another child that potentially has a lot less and is struggling with, you know, life for whatever reason. You know, is it the same thing to be able to provide for them equally? Mm. Or would it be fairer to provide for the one in greater need? Yeah. And I guess the added complexity to that is that those sorts of situations could well change mm. from the point at which somebody writes that will Absolutely. and to the point at which it's, it's ex- executed. Mm. And, and this is where we don't know who the potential predators are at mm. the time of death. No. And we don't have that crystal ball. So when you're planning this type of thing, you know, ideally is to be able to to have the flexibility of allowing um, the the situation to be dictated depending on the circumstances at that moment in time. Yeah. So so you know, for me, two most important words are what if. Well, yes, you want to leave everything to your children, but what if when they inherit, one's going through a divorce or a breakup or one is going bankrupt or you know, one is in need of care or means assessed benefits or, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're thinking multiple steps ahead of time And we're wanting to be in a situation where we could create some sort of flexibility. And this is where potentially choosing the people to act for you in your will is important. And how the will is actually drafted is important. And, you know, some of the parties involved in a will 
are people called executives. And the role of the executor is to secure and identify all your assets, all your stuff and the value of them um, and to pay the tax if there is tax due in order that they can apply for you know, a grant of probate. That is the role of the executor. Thereafter, once the grant has been applied for and a person is successful in getting the grant, then that role as executor changes and it switches to the role of a trustee. And a trustee is a person that the deceased entrusts to divide their estate according to what the will asks them to do, whether that is you know, to divvy it out absolutely to specific individuals as dictated in the will, or whether it's to be a guardian to um, a little pot that's a trust to then divvy it out depending. You know, that's dependent on how a will is drafted. And the choice that you make of who to appoint as your executor and who to appoint as your trustee or trustees is important. And I would say probably the most important. Mm. And people will usually say, oh, well, I'll appoint all my children because I want to be fair. And if you know that you've got, you know, three children and one child is heavily influenced by a spouse and you've got another child who really doesn't get on with somebody else and you've got a third child who lives the other side of the world, how are the three of them going yeah. to work together to act mm. for you? And are they going to be able to you know, set their feelings aside? And given that feelings are even more heightened of with course. a loss. So it may not be the most practical thing to appoint those people. And if you know that there is going to be headbutting because they you know, argue, um, then you're probably doing them a disfavor mm. by appointing them. As much as you love them and you want to be fair amongst them and you don't want one to be favored over another, my question would then be, is it practical? Yes. And, uh, and, and that then, you know, unravels back a step to before you die, because power of attorney, you know, the decision-making power that you could give to someone, you know, it's what I call, if you were in a half dead situation, you're not quite there, but you're not able to make your own decisions. Mm. Then for me, that's more important than actually having a will because power of attorney is who are you trusting to make those all important life decisions yeah. around looking alive. after you whilst you're still alive because the law doesn't specify who is entitled to make those decisions and this is again where people make assumptions and and it's really those two situations that got me into will writing in the first place you know i was married to somebody in the army we were at a point in uh in life where there had been conflicts in afghanistan conflicts in iraq and 
you know, soldiers were being deployed, and I use soldiers in the widest term to cover, you know, all the services. And servicemen and women um, were either coming back in a coma or in a body bag, and they may not have made sufficient provisions with well-written wills if they had died, or were still didn't make provisions of appointing powers of attorney. So mm. if you imagine you come back, you're in a coma, having, you know, put your life on the line for the country and your loved ones can't make those decisions for you as to how you deal with your finances and how to deal with your health and welfare. How devastating is that? Yeah. And there is no law that says, oh, well, is this person married? Oh, in that case, their husband or their wife can make those decisions. No, that's not how it works. Mm. And again, it's because people don't know what they don't know. No. And it kind of makes me feel like, should that not be included? when so, You know, because if you're joining the military, it's, you know, it's a, you know, a job with risk of, serious injury so, or or death and it kind of just seems to make to my is. mind I'm thinking like do they not do that when they when they sign up so there is a form <laughs> that they fill covered. in which is you know which is their you know their will it covers it but given the complexities of our society do they actually understand what the form yeah. means do they understand the decisions that they're making when they do that and you know, are they getting enough advice when they make those decisions? In the same way, you can go into a post office or you can go into a stationery store and you can buy a will pack and you can write it yourself. But do you understand what it is and do you yeah. understand all the ramifications? And you can go online and do, you know, lasting powers of attorney online yourself. But do you understand what all of those things mean? And do you understand the legal you know, implications of who you're appointing, what they can do, what they can't do? And that's where advisors come into their own. And if you can find a good advisor, then you can ask all the questions. And I think this is the important thing. For me, you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And a lot of people say, oh, yes, but I've got power of attorney over my mum. So mum's now died, but I have power of attorney. And I said, that's whilst your mum's alive. Mm. Your mum's gone now. So your power of attorney ceases to be of, you know, of any validity as soon as a person dies. And a lot of people, you know, confuse the two about having a will and having power of attorney and being able to do stuff because they think. You know, I have the power of attorney, therefore I'm entitled to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And it really is, you know, some confusion for a lot of people as to what one does and what one doesn't. Um, so it really is around educating people yeah. and helping people understand. And, and, you know, in my mind, I would say, having powers of attorneys drafted and getting those documents set up and registered is probably more important than having a will. And the reason 
I feel that is, first of all, the law dictates what happens if you died without a will. So ideally, you'd know what the law says. And I've given you a vague outline. Um, So if people are okay with that, they know it's going to go somewhere. But if you were in an accident or if you you know, we're in a situation of of ill health where you can't make those decisions and you haven't appointed anyone, then someone is going to go to the court of protection and say, well, we need to be able to get these bills paid. Maybe social services might have to step in and go to court of protection. And suddenly you've got a stranger making those decisions on your behalf. And so it's about understanding actually and thinking through a, a power of attorney document, an LPA, you know, and there are two of them, um, is I term it as an insurance policy that you take out for your decision-making power. You hope you never need to use that policy, but you're sure as heck happy to know that it's there if you needed it. So in the same way we have home contents insurance or we have, you know, public liability insurance or professional indemnity insurance, you never want to claim on it, but you still pay for it. Um, And you pay for it because you hope you never need to use it, but you're grateful to have it if you did. Yes. And that's exactly the same thing with lasting powers of attorney. That is exactly what it is. You register it, you know, you appoint it, you appoint the people that you wish to, you know, look after your decision-making power, um, but you're very, very aware that if you never need to use it, thank goodness for that. Yeah, yeah, it was still money well spent. Yes, time well spent. Absolutely, and and you know that could be a whole other conversation about understanding powers of attorney. Mm. You know, but but really, it's it's helping people start that conversation. And to start thinking about it and understanding that, you know, some people think the minute they start talking about it, you know, bucket's going to fall on their head and they're going to die. Yeah. (laughs) Like I've talked about it, so it's going to happen now. Exactly. It's tempting fate. Mm. And, and, you know, and certainly when I, when I first trained as, as a will writer, you know, my first role was to go to units pre-deployment. I would go and talk to 350 soldiers before they deploy and tell them, you know, you're about to go on the front line. You're about to, to you know, eyeball somebody on the other side. And, you know, you may not come home. And who's going to look after your affairs and who's going to look after your family if you don't? And... I have to say with hindsight, that was the wrong time to be mm. talking to them. And and that's reflected by you know, how few wills I you know, helped get drafted during that time. And primarily because <clears throat> you know, our, our armed forces don't want to be thinking about not coming home when they're about to go Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's the wrong frame of mind. Yeah. You know, Um, but for a lot of them, it's that sense of they come home having seen awful things that then bring it to the forefront. But Mm. at the same time, 
the awful things have meant that they really don't want to think about it. So you're then caught in that vicious cycle of, I really don't want to think about it, but I've seen a lot of things that mean that I need to think about it. And then you're in that cycle. And it's then how to hold space for people when they're in that cycle of helping support them navigate through how they can support their loved ones when they go. Yeah. Gosh, so I guess in a way you're almost in a bit of a counsellor role then in that scenario. I think, you know, the there is advice I can give around thinking through various things and knowing, um, you know, what potential minefields exist out there. And, you know, I think ideally whoever you go and speak to they should be asking you loads of questions mm. they should be you know thinking through all the different potentials and you know i've been in situations where where they don't tell me they've got children you know with a different partner and and yet they know that that's important so i'm opening cupboards and shaking every closet to find all the skeletons um and and for me it's it's about being very clear that there's no judgment you know my job isn't to judge you my job is to give you the best advice and the way i can give you best advice is to actually you know to earn your trust to be able to be privy to that information so that i can advise you fully and so if you if you have that conversation with somebody you've got to feel that you can you can bear all yeah, yeah and know that you know you can be comfortable with it and that you know the person you're talking to can support you through and isn't going to suddenly you know judge you mm. because that's not my job my job is to to understand what you want to happen and to tell you whether that's possible or not. And if it's not possible, to give you something as close to, if at all, you know, feasible. And to then help you negotiate it because, you know, five years down the line, you might change your mind. And if you change your mind, that's fine. But we then revisit that. Because it's not something that you necessarily do once and that's no. it. You know, I, I have, I remember somebody saying to me, oh, well, I thought about doing it when my son was born. And I thought, great. How old's your son? Oh, he's 21 now. <laughs> you know, and, and I would say this for anyone who has young children, because this is one thing that people do say to me, well, I've got nothing now. You know, I'm, I'm, we're still renting. There is, you know, we don't have a lot. I was like, have you got young children? And if the answer is yes, then there's your lot. Yeah. Because your will is the only way you can appoint guardians if you die. Mm. If you are the last person with parental responsibility for this young life and you don't have a will, then... It is not a given that your parents will look after them or that your sibling will look after yeah. them. You know, the likelihood is social services will step in and mm. that there's a you know a possibility that, yes, there's a chance your family members will look after them. 
But if the circumstances aren't right because a sibling lives in a one bedroom, you know, flat and you've got twins and they do shift work and they can't physically look after your children, then they're not going to be the best place to do that. And social services will need to step in because they have to think of whatever is best for the children. And if you don't specify, you know, through a will, now that's your legal document to specifying whom you wish to look after your children. And, you know, if that's not the thing that you have that is the most precious to you when you're young, then, you know, I don't know what is. And your pets, for some of us who have yeah. pets, I've you can't see, but I've got my my rather heavy cat sat on my lap right mm-hmm. now. And you know, there are people who have exotic pets like parrots and you know reptiles that live yeah. far longer yeah. than you know their human counterparts. Well, who's going to look after them when you go? And you know. It's it's those things. And if you have particular things that you really want loved ones to get, like, you know, for, for those who have been in service, for example, they've got family or grandparents who may have served and they've got medals that are important and they want it to be kept in the family, then who's going to do that? You know, um, so there are lots of, lots and lots of things that people potentially need to think about and don't realize it doesn't even cross their minds no and do you think your experience of yoga and and teaching yoga kind of helps bring something to that conversation and being able to sort of guide them with I suppose kindness and compassion I I remember when I first started this I was already you know, teaching fitness and teaching, you know, health and well-being, if you like. And I remember um, somebody said, well, you can't, you can't do those two things. You know, people get really confused as to, you know, what do you do? Are you a yoga teacher or are you a lawyer? And I was like, why can't I do both? Um, I said, they are inextricably linked. I said, because it is about the wheel of life and, you know, the, the ability to live and breathe and move is as much as part of life as, you know, the eventuality of death. So I saw the two as very much linked. And, and I find it interesting because you know, when, I, when I now talk about stuff, the, the trust that I build through my work with my yoga students and clients is that they've entrusted me with their physical body. And some of them have entrusted me with that for years. And we've built a relationship through sharing energetic space with them and movement. And and to the point now where, you know, quite a few of them come to me for that legal help because they think, well, you know me because you've spent time with me and you have that understanding of me as a person. And likewise, they know me because they you know they see me in class they know what i am like as an individual and you can get that vibe yeah and, and trust, so isn't build it? that trust and and i think what i take to my legal clients is it's me you know and and what i stand for is is about the love and the care and the compassion 
but also about the integrity of what we're doing and understanding what people want and need and helping guide them. And so it's no different to somebody being in a particular pose and they can't reach a particular shape in their yoga practice or breath in their yoga practice and offering them a different route to achieve that. The only thing is they're still living and breathing. Whereas the legal stuff means that I'm trying to keep them, you know, living and breathing for as long as I can, but making sure that actually they've thought through what they want to happen when the inevitable happens and that they're able to then, you know, deal with that. They've thought it through. They can put it to one side. It doesn't become this sort of Damocles that hangs over their head and they think I can't move on. And they're in that space of, you know, fright and freeze. And, and I do see that a lot for people because they get, into their heads so much that they get so stuck in not making a decision Mm. and the hard part is when children watch parents do this and I've had the privilege of looking after quite a few parents more recently so we're talking anything from sort of you know 60s 70s 80s 90s and talking to them and helping them maneuver around what it is that they want to do and the children get very angsty because they so they see the turmoil that their mums and dads are going through and they're like I don't know what to do and they're like mom dad you need to do something and and there have been times when I get phone calls from multiple children from you know the same family going she needs help or he needs help to move on and it's like yes but we have to go at their pace and if it means that you know it it doesn't happen if they've been told enough times and we've gone through and gone around the same questions and they're not able to come to a decision their indecision is in itself a decision yeah And for a lot of people, that's a really bitter pill to swallow. Mm. And and I would say that if they find themselves in that situation, that they need to start with themselves first in that, have they sorted their own affairs out? Are they aware of what they need to do so that they understand the potential turmoil that their parent might be going through? because no two pairs of shoes fit the same. And until you walk in their shoes, you may never understand how challenging their circumstances are and why it's challenging. And and that if they do feel that, you know, being fair is something that they really, really want. And when you've got four siblings and two of them are desperately, you know, in need of money and two of them are very, very well situated and the words, well, that's not fair comes out of one of their mouths. But the impact of that supposed entitlement 
And, you know, I think one of my pet hates is the word entitled. Um, you know, hey, you came into this world with nothing. You're going to leave this world with nothing. There is no such thing as entitled. You know? and, and I think it's not helped by the fact that, you know, we're living in a society where actually, you know, the bank of mum and dad has, has resurrected itself um, if it ever went away. And, and people are needing to support their families for a much longer period yeah. of time. Um, and, you know, young children and older children are having to go back home to mom and dad, you know, for help. So, you know, there are lots of situations where, you know, where I can and where I, I think if there is a possibility and it, it doesn't always work for people is when a family can get together and talk about it. When they can have an open and frank discussion and have somebody there who can who can look after them, who mm. can answer the difficult questions and who can put off, put forward the concerns that a parent may not have the courage to, to voice. And, yeah. and that's something that you are able to facilitate. I have done that. Yeah. I have done that for families. And, you know, I have had situations where families, where, you know, one mother doesn't want one child to have attorneyship because they're worried that they're going to get bullied into stuff. Mm. And it's not because the child is a bully, but it's because the child is so desperately wanting to do right by their parents that they come across as being a bully. And it's then understanding the personalities and understanding yeah. the dynamic within a family. So there are so many factors that people need to take into consideration. So it's no surprise when people say, oh, it's all really overwhelming. Mm. Um, and that's before you get into a situation where there is actually death or near death in, yeah. in the vicinity, if you like. Wow. I mean, that certainly opened my eyes to the, you know, complexities and, you know, the things that you are exposed, you know, all those very different situations. You know, if you'd asked me at the beginning of, of this um, discussion, I probably would have rated will writing as probably not being one of the more interesting occupations but I think I have definitely changed my mind now just given you know you're, you're dealing with the the complexities of every single different family setup aren't you that that can exist and that in itself is you know certainly for me a a, a fascinating topic to observe so what do you what do you think out of all your years of doing this and of all the people that you've worked with and the situations that you've been involved with, what has been the biggest lesson or the, the lessons that you've that you've learned that now kind of guide you or that you use to guide others? I think I think one of the things that fuels me and you know I, I think back is when I first started this I remember um, a meeting I had uh, online Skype and, and and that was with a young soldier who hadn't yet turned 18 but knew that he was going to deploy when he turned 18 and he had attended one of my one of my presentations and he said I sat through it I didn't understand it and he goes but 
you know, but I knew it had to be important. And he wasn't able to drive. So he took a bus to um, the financial advisor's office um, and sought their help to to connect with me. And and I remember, you know, sitting on back then it was Skype um, and uh, and he said, um, he said, I, I don't understand what it was. He said, I've got life insurance, you know, and he was very proud of the fact that he'd taken maximum cover for life insurance, you know, at 18. And, and I said to him, I said, well, what it is, is I want to know what you want to happen if you didn't come home. Um, and first thing out of his mouth, my sister to have dancing lessons. And that was like, you know, that was his big thing. Yeah. And and that's what he wanted to do. And I was like, okay, well, you know, it wasn't what I was expecting, but you know, and I said, okay, well, that's fine. We can, you know, we can most likely make that happen. I mean, and he says, well, you know, mom and dad will have the money, but I want my sister to have, to have dancing lessons. And um, and we went through the the talks, and in the most simplistic terms of him understanding that this was to do with if he didn't come home. And and at the end of the conversation, he said, I need to go home and talk to my dad. And he subsequently deployed when he turned 18. And unfortunately, he was killed in action. And I didn't find out until through social media Mm. uh, and across between, I think it was Facebook and the BBC. And I never wrote his will because he never came back to me. And the hardest part for me even now is knowing I couldn't help him give his sister dancing lesson. It's such a seemingly trivial thing, but the impact it had on me was profound because here was a young, he was a young boy who's, you know, given the ultimate sacrifice. And all he wanted was to make sure his sister had dancing lessons. And you know, it's been years now since he's gone, but I still think about that. And I think this is about you telling the world what you want to happen to your stuff, to your things, to your memories, it's your legacy. And I think we have a duty to share that and we have a duty to, to have it documented so that people are aware of it and where absolutely possible that it happens and that's ultimately what my job is is to understand why people want things to happen in a particular way and you know I'm like their guard dog you know making sure that what needs to happen happens Um, and there may be well good reasons why something may not happen but I would need to understand what those good reasons are and be able to justify that. And most of the time for a lot of my clients where they elect to have professional trustees and professional executors, that's because they know that by appointing that professional, they're expecting them to uphold their wishes. And they've got that clarity and understanding and the backstory because everybody's lives are stories and you don't understand why somebody does something until you understand their backstory. And when you understand why they do something because of something that has happened, then you understand 
why something needs to be in a particular way. You know, in the same way, I come into estate planning and I'm passionate about protecting people because I know, you know both from that story of that young soldier through to my own personal experience of losing my dad and his letter of wishes just never happened. You know, through to other personal losses, you have that understanding. And when you know, then I'll be hell bent on making sure it happens. Wow. I'm not actually sure where to go <laughs> with that. That was, I mean, just, just incredible. And please, how do people get in contact with you if they have been moved by all that you've you've shared and just they can your um, very thorough approach and caring approach to people being able to to sort things out the way that they want them to I think the important thing for people to understand is you find the right person for you and talk to them see if you get the right feel from them because I think that that was one of the things that a recent client said to me was you know, they were in the process of doing something with their house and they went to, you know, the solicitors that they went to. And and the thing that struck them was they were sent a load of paperwork and said, this is what you need to do. And that was it. And it was, and they felt, they were like, but this is so important. You know, it, it just felt so impersonal. And I think this is where connecting with the person that you're going to share your story with is fundamental because everybody's lives are different mm -hmm. and you know I have turned clients away because they you know in my mind were not the you know the type of client that I could support and I have directed them elsewhere and said you know what you need to go and talk to this person instead because they will be in a better position to help you so you know if people want to connect then they can either visit my website um and my business is asia zen willwriting.co.uk um asia zen because the asia is my heritage i'm you know from the far east um with english parent and an oriental parent um and the zen is the yoga element yeah. and um so that's where my business, you know, sort of name comes from. Um, and there's a there's an inquiry form on there. I'm also reachable on social media through Instagram. I'm my handle is the Will Writing Yogi. And if people just type in the Will Writing Yogi into a search engine, I suspect they'll probably find me. Um, and and it would be useful for them to just you know tag you. And so that I know how they found me. Yes. Yeah. And and I can make that connection in that way. And um and we can just start a conversation and see. Gosh, thank you so much for your time today, Eunice. I mean, I I have learned a huge amount. I do have a will in place, but the writing of it was nothing like I suspect it would have been. <laughs> Had I come to you, it was it was more of the uh, the solicitor type experience that you just talked about a few moments ago. Um, yeah, so that's given me 
you know some some things to think about but you know hopefully people as you say you know if they if they choose not to have a will that they have it based on that informed choice that they that they know what what will happen and also if they choose not to have an LPA as well and that's something I need to go away and think about <laughs> there is lots and lots of stuff you know the intricacies and I will I will say say one little bit um is I know people especially elderly people where I go and visit and it's like oh will you take this you know you can have this now and they're desperately wanting to clear their house before they've even gone and one of the things I say to them is think about putting labels on the back of things if yeah. you know a grandchild has come in and they've always picked up that ornament because it's the ornament that they've loved and they've loved since they were little then put a label on it and put that grandchild's name on it because that's going to make life so much easier mm. when the time comes for families and they come in and, and, and they are overwhelmed by stuff, you know? Um, and certainly if, you know, um, my background on this is blurred because I have a lot of stuff in my house <laughs> and, um, uh, and there are people who might have a very, very, um, simple life, but there might be people who have, you know, various objects that they've collected in their travels or everything has a story and they want to yeah. share that. And, and, you know, the one little tidbit I will say for people is if you know there is something that, you know, someone would appreciate and it would be something of you that they remember, then put a label on it and put your, their name on it and, you know, and, and document it so that, you know, this is what I want to go to wherever or whomever and think about charities think about things that you're passionate about because that and not just the big charities but the little ones mm. because the little ones are the ones that really do do a lot of you know um do a lot of good not that the big ones don't but no but it's real grassroots work it's isn't it it's, and mm. and it's and, and it's important you know to help the the smaller charities as as much as to help the bigger ones because you know that is one thing that I do hear people I don't want that to be paying an, a bill I want it to actually help you know a, a a cause yeah and and my response to that is don't forget if they can't pay a bill that charity can't run so if you restrict what you want your money to be used for, then potentially you end up not helping the charities mm. of choice because if they can't pay an electric bill because you know they're they're down to their sort of last you know five thousand pounds or whatever, then the office can't run in order to be able to fulfill yeah. whatever it is that they're trying to support. So there are so many different facets. And, and and I think it all boils down to the first step, which is to start a conversation. Thank you so much for our conversation. And I hope that our conversation today sparks off people having their conversations with you or even just to start the conversation with their family as well. Thank you so much, Eunice. Thank you. I hope you found that as interesting as useful as I did 
and if you haven't got a provision for a will or a lasting power of attorney but hopefully it might spur you into action at least to start to have that conversation thank you so much Eunice for sharing your knowledge please do get in contact with her if you are interested in her services I'd like to thank everyone who supports me in the production of this podcast to Jamie Farrell for the beautiful music and of course to you the listener please share this episode It's such an important message to get out there. I'll be back soon with another lesson from loss.